All right. Good morning. Well, that was a whole passel of kids who just left here today, huh? It was good. Hey, uh, welcome. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. I'm Pastor Dave. Uh, some people in the first service said, where have you been? What have you been doing? But uh, I don't feel like I've been gone maybe a Sunday or two. I, I had to travel around. I preached at all of our campuses. Last week was in Mississippi. Uh, we're starting a campus down there. Not really, but I uh, feel like it sometimes. But I'm glad to be here and happy to be starting this new series called Themes of Revelation. Now, they did a survey several years ago, and it revealed that the book of Revelation is the number one book that people in the church want to hear a sermon on or a series on. The same survey to preachers, the book of Revelation was the least favorite book that preachers wanted to preach a sermon on or a series on. And the reason uh, I think that's probably true is because preachers know there are so many interpretations and so many variations of, uh, of uh, you know, how to interpret the different things in the book of Revelation that it can cause some uh, fights, it can cause some arguments, you know. There's two things you can't discuss at uh, Thanksgiving around the table with your family. One is politics, and the other is the book of Revelation. There might be some other things, too. But anyway, we're going to jump into it. Now, I'm doing a themes of series, so that means we can't get into all the questions and all the issues. I'd be happy to talk to you on the side or during the week about that, but we're going to Hit some of those, and definitely going to cover the big things, but this is a themes up. Before we get started, I want you to notice on that word, revelation, there's no S at the end of it. Can I get an amen? amen? The same is true for the word Kroger and the word Walmart. There's no S on the end of those words either, unless it's possessive S. So it's the themes of revelation. Themes of revelation. And uh, there are lots of visions, but one revelation. Now, if you were with us in June, you remember that we covered themes of Genesis. Themes of Genesis was a, a great book. I really enjoyed that. Five messages on the, the beginnings, on things like life and the curse and salvation and judgment and the blessing through Abraham. And we ended that book by looking forward to a Savior who would once and for all deal with the serpent, with Satan, who slithered his way in and deceived the man and the woman. Oh, the, boy, they're really jumping ahead of me back there. They must be in a hurry. So, uh, and then we spent four weeks on, we spent four weeks on the pray for one. And then, now we're doing themes of revelation. So themes of revelation strategically placed here because we believe, I believe, that if you're convinced that there was a God who started, there was a God who started things, who gave us life, if there was a God who created us, to whom we are accountable, and you believe that at the end we also are accountable, that God will wrap us up, wrap up the course of human history, then we believe that everything in the middle will take care of itself. Everything in the middle will take care of itself. And that's why we did pray for one in the middle because we ought to be about something. We ought to be doing something 
like praying for one and reaching out to our neighbors and our family members for, with the gospel. So we're going to do uh, six weeks here. I was originally going to do five weeks, but I decided that I needed, a, I needed an introductory message. And that's what today is. It's an introductory message. We don't want to get bogged down in the series on all the issues and the interpretation, uh, who's right and who's heretical. For instance, if you're a premillennial, pre-tribulation dispensationalist, you're probably a heretic. Man, the first, first service really was with me on these things, but you guys uh, must be, uh, you must still be out there somewhere. This is the book of Revelation, and uh, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. There's a lot of little details we could get in there and look at this tree, but we want to see the forest. And so we could really sum this book up with two words, two words, and uh, sorry, I saw him in the back and didn't see him back here, so I know you're, you're on top of it. What are those two words? We win. Let's say it again. We win. If you're a believer, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, that's the message of Revelation. We win. You know, when Satan did his deal and Adam and Eve disobeyed, and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it unleashed a Pandora's box of evil, and evil got a foothold on the human heart. And so it has now been our, our struggle and our challenge since the time of the fall in Genesis 3 that you and I are dealing with evil. We're dealing with temptation. We're dealing with sin, and it's all around us, and it's everywhere, and it's even for, you know, in us. And for some people, you know, they, they lose that battle every day. And so there's a promise in Scripture to Eve and also to us that God one day will deal one sudden, violent, intervening blow to Satan. His end will be sure and certain. Now, he dealt the first blow on the cross which made it possible for us to be grafted in to the family. But there will be one sudden, a quick, so fast that you're not going to know it came until it's over. It's not like you're going to have hours to prepare or you're going to be able to go in and grab your favorite pictures or to find out where your kids are. You're not going to be able to, to uh, get that money under your mattress. You're not going to need it anyway. This is going to happen so fast. So in light of this incredible, sudden victory, I mean, I'm emphasizing the word sudden. I want to tell you, to start things off, why this book was written, the purpose of Revelation, and the sole purpose of Revelation. Now, it's not the only purpose. Let me take that back. It is the main purpose of the book of Revelation, is to encourage believers to remain faithful. That's the reason Revelation was written. It wasn't written so you could grab a calendar and a calculator and your Bible and a newspaper and circle something on the calendar and say, ah, oh, this is when he's going to return. That's not why the book was written. This book was written by John the Apostle in the late part of the first century. Most New Testament scholars date this to about A.D. 95 when an emperor named Domitian was sitting on the throne of Rome. Now, Domitian was uh, a hater of Christians, but he wasn't the only hater. All of Rome, most of Rome, hated these Christians. Persecution by this point was 60 years 
in the making, but it had a long way to go, another 200 years. John was, when he wrote this, received these visions and the revelation, was an old man. If you think about John, John the Apostle, if Jesus was uh, doing his ministry somewhere around 30, let's say, let's just date it at 30, a little bit before, a little bit after, and John was with him, John was a young man, let's say John was 20, he might have been older, I think probably he was older, but let's say he was 20 for the sake of math, and 20, 70 more years puts you to 90, and then 95 is when we think it was written, so 75 years plus the 20 he'd already lived, how old was John? That's easy math, Not about 95. He was an old man. Yet even as old as he was, he was still a threat to the Roman Empire. So they exiled him. You know, I guess because he was so old, they didn't execute him. They exiled him to this little island in the Aegean Sea about six miles long and four miles wide called the island of Patmos. And so you can't hurt anybody out there. And so they exiled him out there, Domitian did, while he did his number on those who were in, with, within his reach to persecute. Now, persecution didn't start with the Romans. It started with the Jews. You remember in the New Testament, the book of Acts, we see they're having resistance from the Jewish leadership. That's the first resistance. In fact, the apostle Paul was part of that. He was resisting the advance of the church. He was trying to snuff out this new religion. You see, Christianity was a threat to Judaism because Christianity claimed to be the kind of the heir of Judaism. Judaism, the Jewish faith and Jewish religion, they had, you know, received this promise from God of a Messiah. And so the Christians believed that Christ, followers of Christ, that's what a Christian is, Christ was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And so this, it was kind of, to them, it was a new religion, to the Jews. To the Christians, it wasn't a new religion. It was just a fulfillment of what God had been doing since the time of Abraham. And so to the Jewish leadership, they were a threat because they were pulling people away from Judaism. They were pulling people away from, uh, from the old ways into a, a new religion of grace. And something that centered around Calvary. We know this is true because Caiaphas, the high priest in John chapter 11, told his comrades. He said, you guys don't know what's going on here. They kind of knew. They knew something special was going on with Jesus. But they didn't care because they cared more about their party. They cared more about their, the Pharisees, their religion, than they did about the world and about what God was doing. He said, it is better for you, he told his comrades that, it's better for you that one man should die than for a whole nation to perish. You see, what was going on there is the Romans had grandfathered the Jews in to their religious system. Everybody else had to worship the Roman gods. They had to, at once a year at least, throw incense on the altar of Caesar and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. But the Jews didn't have to do that. They were grandfathered in because this is the genius of the Romans. They, when they came in and conquered a new uh, area, they didn't upset it by saying, okay, out with the old, in with the new. They allowed people to keep their religions. They allowed people to keep doing what they were doing. 
And so the Jewish people had been grandfathered in, but if the word got out that the new religion was actually the Jewish religion come to fulfillment, then they would lose that standing. And Caiaphas knew that, and so they had to kill Jesus and snuff out this religion because they cared more about their religion than they did about Jesus and what he was doing, what God was doing in the world. And so they persecuted the church, and that's what God saved Paul from doing. Paul was a part of that. And then Paul began to preach the gospel, and he was persecuted by, mostly by his Jewish brothers that he used to walk alongside. As a result of this cultural hatred toward Christianity, the Roman emperor Nero, in about 64, AD 64, this is only 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, 30 years of Jewish persecution, and then Nero decided that everybody, all these Jews hated the Christians, so we might as well use this as an opportunity. So historians believe that he started this fire in the ghettos of Rome to get rid of the rats and the disease and the poverty there, and so he could build something new. And he started this fire and then blamed it on, guess who? The Christians. And so from there, Christians began to be the number one target, not just of the Jewish leadership, but of the Roman Empire. And that was about 64 AD. And you can study this topic and you can see that over the next 250 years, Christians were the target of persecution for the Roman Empire. And I'm not just talking about, uh, I'm, just, I'm not talking about shutting down their social media accounts. I'm talking about persecution. I'm talking about boiling some of them in oil. I'm talking about Nero who, who would soak them in some kind of tar, some kind of flammable liquid, and then jab them through, and uh, excuse the, uh, the, the imagery, but jab them through, uh, uh, through the midsection with a stake and then hang them, uh, put the stake in the ground and hang them through his gardens and light them up on fire, and they would light the gardens, and people would walk through, and these tortured, agonizing, screaming Christians on each side. You can study this online for yourself and see the horrendous ways that Christians were paying the price for their faith. It's a wonder Christianity even survived this period with that kind of persecution, but as the second century leader Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And instead of snuffing it out, it exploded with growth. It grew. By this time of this writing, it was only 60 years old, another 200 to go. So why did God give this book to John? He gave it to John to tell the believers, be faithful. Hold on. He said there, be faithful until death. This is the church of Smyrna. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Because that was going to happen to them. They were, they were going to die. Not many of them died a natural death like John. All the other apostles died in some kind of martyrdom, killed for their faith. And many of the Christians, whose names we don't even know, that we may meet one day in eternity, were Christians Ordinary people like you and me who were killed for their faith. So Revelation's a book of encouragement. Things are bad. Things are going to get worse. There's going to be ridicule and criticism and pain and death and loss. But hold on. Keep the faith. Now I'm reminding you that Reg Revelation is primarily a book of 
encouragement because it's also full of images and symbolic language that a lot of people either can't understand or want to somehow glamorize to crack some calendar code for the apocalypse. Lots of numbers in this book, lots of imagery. And if you're not careful, you'll buy into this imagery that, oh, those that's a Black Hawk helicopter or an Apache helicopter or, you know, you'll, and you'll, you'll buy into that. But I want to tell you, this book was written to first century Christians. They didn't know anything about Apache helicopters. So if it wasn't meant to encourage them, and I'm not talking just about a verse or two, I'm talking about the whole book, including all the images and the language and the numbers, we call that numerology, then if it wasn't written for them, then who, who was it written for? I mean, it couldn't have just been written for us. It was written for Christians of all ages. This is what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, you hear the word apocalypse, that means the end of time. It's a genre of literature that, you know, that talks about the end of time. We have this uh, in other places in the, in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel. A lot of Daniel, chapter 7 in the book of Revelation, Zechariah. We also find it in Matthew and in Luke. But listen to me. The imagery and the numerology was not meant or designed to trick the reader. It wasn't mind, uh, designed to keep believers in the dark, scratching their heads. I wonder what he means by that number. I wonder what that image means. No, that's not why it was written. It was written so that believers could be encouraged by it. It might have been a little bit like insider language so that the Romans wouldn't recognize what was being said. But the believers knew, oh, this is in the Old Testament. We, we know that, so we know what's going on here. You know, early Christians used insider lingo uh, quite often. If you were walking up to somebody's house and you saw a fish symbol on their door, yeah, the ordinary person wouldn't know what that was, but if you were a Christian, what would you know? Oh, that's the, that's the, that's the fish. And every Greek letter and the word for fish in Greek, ichthus, you know, if you study ichthyology, you're a study of, student of sharks and fish. But ichthus, that, that those, every one of those letters stands for uh, Jesus, Son of God, Savior. That's what that stands for. And they would have known, oh, that, the Christian lives here. We, maybe we can spend the night because the Bible talks about hospitality. And it's not like, oh, we're Christians over here. Uh, anybody believers, you can come stay with us. But uh, now that we've put our billboard out there, the Romans are going to kill us before you get here. So it was insider language. They often used the first two letters of Christ, the key and the row, as a symbol that, oh, Christians are here. That's supposedly the sign that Constantine saw in the sky, the first two letters of Christ in Greek, key in the row. He saw that in the sky somewhere around 313, 8313, and converted to Christianity because he saw this sign, and it said in the, he said he saw the words, in this sign you will conquer. And that's when the persecution of Christians stopped, when Constantine saw that on his way to a battle. So, Lots of persecution over the first 300 years of the church. This book was written so that people could be encouraged. And I think first century Christians would have understood most everything in this book and been encouraged by it. Now, you and I may have some trouble understanding parts of it, but I don't think 
uh, we're as into that apocalyptic literature as they were, and we're not in the situation they were in. There's still lots of it we can understand, but I think some of it we, we don't really get as much as they would have got. Remember this, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's a picture book, not a puzzle book. For instance, if you lived a 1,000 years from now, 1,000 years from now, and you picked up this, you found this manuscript, maybe at that time it was a digital writing, you know, who knows, 1,000 years from now, and you're reading something, and this says ancient prophecies. And you read this, 1,000 years from now, you read the bull in Chicago which once ruled the earth for 72 months, has suffered a mighty fall. For at the end of 72 months, the great right horn of the bull, whose number was 23, departed. And so did the great left horn of the bull. Then the third horn of the bull, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman, likewise departed. (laughs) Then other beasts of the earth, the hornets and the timber wolves, came in. And devoured the flesh of the bull, and the glory of the mighty bull was laid low. As a thousand years from now, a thousand years from now, they wouldn't know what we were talking about. But how many of you know what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Michael Jordan was the greatest player in the NBA. Now, Jameson and I argue about that. He thinks it's Steph Curry. I tell him it's Michael Jordan. Steph can't jump. He doesn't even have a good shot. He just makes a lot. But you see what I'm saying? This is kind of language that's shrouded to people a thousand years from now. But right now, we, most of us know what that's talking about. You know, if you're up on popular culture and sports and things like that. So the believers who first read this book would have understand that. For example, horns are almost always a sign and a symbol of kings and kingdoms. And the number 12 and its multiples, like 24 or 144,000, represent or symbolize the complete people of God, 12 apostles, 24 elders. The number 10 and its multiples, like 1,000, represent and symbolize complete amounts of time, a fulfillment of time. We just read that the believers in Smyrna would have tribulation for 10 days. Now, we know that 10 days wasn't meant to be literal. I mean, 10 days, I mean, we can do that, right? Come on. If one Pablo can, uh, you know, make it for 78 days on a loan, you and I can make it for 10 days. Have any loan fans out there? No? It's a great show. You should watch it. 10 days was a a symbolic period of time. This is going to be symbolic. It's going to be a a complete period of time those people in Smyrna they suffered for the next 300 years and they all died before that was over they would have understood that the number seven represents perfection or completion this number is all throughout this book seven it's a symbolic number did you know in revelations two and three the letters to the churches seven churches well there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor there were lots of churches for instance where's Colossae It's not mentioned there. And there's other books in the New Testament that weren't mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. It's because this wasn't meant to be taken literally to these specific seven churches. 
And did you know that these seven churches form a circle in ge uh, geographically to kind of symbolize that this is all of them, speaking to every church of this age and the next age until the Lord returns. And they would have known that the number six is man's number, it's a number of imperfection. And the number six, 66 is imperfection on steroids, which is our number. It's our number. But the 666, six is our number. 666 is the number, is the number of the man who would go against Jesus. They would have understood that the number four represents the earth. You know, the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth, the four winds. It talks about the heavens above. The, or it talks about the heavens and above the earth and on the earth and below the earth. There's four living creatures. All these creatures are of the earth. So four is a number that represents the earth and earthly things. And they would have understood that number three is God's number, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, holy, holy, holy. Why isn't it just holy, holy? Or why isn't it holy, 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 holy? Because it's holy, holy, holy. Trinity, three, that's God's number. In addition, I think these first and second century believers would have more easily connected what John wrote here with what the Old Testament says. You know, there are 404 total verses in the book of Revelation, yet there are over 500 references to the Old Testament in those 404 verses. It's pretty heavy from the Old Testament. Eugene Peterson said it well when he said that there isn't anything in the 66th book of the Bible that isn't found in the previous 65. And in one sense, every book of the Bible, just like the last book of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible were written to encourage God's people to remain faithful under pressure. I mean, that's why the Bible was given to us, to reveal who God is and what he has for man and what he expects from man. And what he expects from man is that we remain faithful in light of who he is and what he has done. Remain faithful under pressure. And it's one thing to remain faithful when times are good. Like if you're living in America in the 1980s or the 1950s when more people were going to church in this country than at any other time in the history of our country. That's a little bit harder to remain faithful now in 2022, but still none of us are being jerked out of our homes and drug over to jail for our faith there won't be policemen standing at the door out there waiting for you as you leave today so it's it's one thing to remain faithful when times are good but what are we going to do when it's a crime to worship our savior what do you think it's going to look like in here then so this this book was written to encourage believers stay faithful when jesus said you're going to have tribulation in this world. They didn't have a clue what was waiting for them. They only knew that he was their Lord and their Savior, and they loved him with all their heart. The Bible says that he didn't regard equality with the Father, something to be grasped, something to be held onto in place of his mission of redemption. So he left the splendors of heaven to come to the earth. He was born in human flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross for our sins, for the sins of the world. He was resurrected on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then while with his disciples between his resurrection and his ascension, he met with his disciples on the Mount of Olivet. And the Bible says, 
the second time I believe this has happened, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Matthew 24, they ask him, when's this going to happen? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, don't worry about that. Don't try to figure this out. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And you talk about graphics and imagery. That would have been incredible for a first century audience. Can you imagine? I mean, you and I, we, we've seen all the Avengers movies, and we've seen people levitate and do all that stuff. Can you imagine what they felt? And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now pay attention to this next part, because this is what motivated them. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This happened around 33 AD. And for the next 70 years, the rest of the first century, the disciples took Jesus' command seriously. There was an urgency and a purpose in their lives. And the main reason for their urgency is because they had surrendered to this God, this man, this Savior, with their life. They were devoting their all. They were going to lay it all on the line, come what may. Persecution notwithstanding, they're going to give it all. He was the Lord of their life. But another reason they had such urgency and to share the gospel and live out the Great Commission is because they expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. They didn't think there would be a 2022. They expected Jesus to come back while they were still living. We know this is true because in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this. He said, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, and listen to this, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, he's talking about the last day here. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, the second time he said that, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This, this word, caught up, is one Greek word that comes over into Latin and comes back down into English as the word rapture. The only place you read about a rapture in the Bible, and th this is the word, the Latin word for rapture. And this is, this was in Paul's mind, the last day. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, it would happen in the twinkling of an eye. That's pretty fast. I mean, that, that, there's not time to do anything. It's going to happen that fast. Peter had the same view that the Lord would come back, he would consummate, he would he would bring everything back together while he was still alive because he wrote, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting 
for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Three times he said, we're waiting for the end to come. Now, I have to say here, parenthetically, that if you are really into the Left Behind series that came out many years ago, and that theology of the end, then you're, you're going to find a lot of points of disagreement with me and how I view things. I don't believe the Bible ever anywhere talks about a secret, silent coming, second coming of the Lord. Now, some people read the book of Revelation and say, well, this is a, the second coming, but he never touches the earth, and this is, Bible, Bible never talks about that. I'd be happy to hear you out on that. When the, when the day of the Lord comes, it will not be silent. Every eye will see him. Everybody will hear him. It will happen so fast, and that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting on him to wrap things up in their lifetime. They didn't, they didn't think it was going to happen in another generation. They were living in the last days. How do we know that? Because we read this in 2 Peter and Acts 2.17, 2 Timothy 3.1, James 5.3, Hebrews 1. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, they were in the last days. I would define the last days as the, starting on the day of Pentecost and going until the Lord returns. It's called the church age. We are in the last days. They didn't know what was coming, but they knew he was coming back. So if they were in the last days, we're in the last days, and I would define the last days as the last, last days. And the last day will be the final day when Jesus returns. That's judgment day. So obviously there are lots of interpretations and I don't, again, don't want to get bogged down in those, but I see most all of Revelation as a figurative book. Insider lingo, the first century people would have understood completely, and we have to be careful not to try to impress our view, since we're living in the 21st century, on the first century people. Listen to me. If it didn't apply to them doesn't apply to us that's how this book is written that's the bible it was written to apply to them and so the book starts like this the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john who bore witness to the word of god and to the testimony of jesus christ even to all that he saw Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What are these blessings for the one who reads it, and the one who hears it, and the one who obeys it? What are the blessings? I think there are two big blessings, and we could talk about more, but I'm just going to talk about two. First of all, I think we will see Jesus more clearly. Most of the time when we study the life of Jesus, we go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke four gospels because that's where we see the red letters but do you know there there's a lot of red letters in the book of revelation and let's be honest with each other the jesus we find in the gospels is a 
is a meek and mild Jesus. Not weak, but meek and loving. He said, uh, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We get a little glimpse of the Jesus of Revelation, though, when he turned the tables over. Remember that? In the, in the uh, courtyard? Turned the tables over. He never backed down from anybody. He never, he never compromised with anybody. But he was a meek and mild. But when we get to the Jesus of Revelation, we see a different Jesus. We see a Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. We see a Jesus with his robe dipped in blood. We see Jesus with his eyes of fire. We see Jesus riding a white horse. It's a powerful Jesus. And I, I think as we study this, if, if we'll, don't, let's not get bogged down or shut down because of our views of the interpretation. Well, let's see Jesus for who he is. And I think that's going to happen in all his splendor as King of kings and Lord of lords. The other blessing, I believe, is that we will follow Jesus more closely. Seriously, if you're convinced that this is going to happen, if you're convinced that one day we're going to meet him face to face, wouldn't that motivate you to follow him more closely? Wouldn't that motivate you to get serious about commission, about your life, about all the things that you can do for him? He said, what must soon take place, soon, and that's a word that we're going to come back to many times as we study this book. It's going to happen soon. When will Jesus return? This is a question they ask all the time. We ask this, when, when will Jesus return? Here's the, here's the truth of it. It's going to be soon. Now, if, if you're looking to mark a date on a calendar, or if you've got all the years worked out, this is going to happen, then Russia's going to do that, and China's going to do this, and America's going to do that, and all this is going to come to work, and this is how this, the two witnesses are going to work, and it's, all gonna, and it's just going to be boom, 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 and then seven years, and then a thousand years. And if, you, if that's your goal when you're reading the book of Revelation, then you're approaching it with the wrong goal in mind. That's not why it was written. That's not why it was written, and it's not how it was received until later times when you and I try to do that. This is the only thing Jesus said, I don't know, when he was asked the question. Do you know that? You say Jesus knows everything? He, he said, here, I don't know. Matthew 24, they said, when's this going to happen? He said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Now, that might blow your mind a little bit, but this is the only thing he said, I don't know. But it'll be soon. It'll be soon. There'll be two standing in a field, and it'll, it won't be gone. Judgment's coming. They'll be in their house, and judgment's coming so fast they won't have time to grab anything but their baby in their arms and run. It's going to happen soon. And this is the only, only time we have Jesus saying, I don't know, but it'll be soon. So don't fry your brain trying to figure out all the details, and don't get all been out of shape if somebody disagrees with you on the end because here's what I want to say to you. There's three things that God's going to say to you as I close from this book and from this series. First of all, be warned. Be warned. As you study this book, you get this clear picture of Jesus and you hear about his soon coming return and it might sound a little bit like a threat. And it could be like a threat if you're not, if you're not, with him, if you're not on his side, 
you're going to find out that Jesus isn't some kind of grandfather figure that kind of tussles the hair and says, it's okay, kids will be kids. You know, I find myself doing that as a grandfather now. I'm like, it's okay to tell my daughter. I say, choose your battles. This isn't that important. Give him the third cookie or Elmo bar or whatever. God is not, Jesus is not this good old buddy who just says, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, you messed up last night. Oh, uh, you, you know, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. He isn't like Mr. Rogers walking down the street whistling, won't you be my neighbor with his sweater vest. No, this is a, this is a Jesus ready to deliver judgment and punishment. You see, the first century church was dealing with worldliness and materialism and sin they were struggling with compromising their with their culture would you say that we're struggling with the same things absolutely so you better be warned better be warned jesus will not tolerate sin for much longer secondly i think he's going to say be comforted Again, people in the first century were suffering. They had lost their jobs, their property. Some had been rejected by their family. They, they had lost family members and friends who were killed or martyred for their faith. They were losing strength. They were paying a price for their faith. And so John comes in with the words from Jesus saying, hold on. It's going to be all right. You're going to be fine. If you just be faithful until death, just hold on. You can do this. Don't lose sight. Don't get bogged down in the suffering you're in and lose sight of the fact that we win if we just stay on his side. Come death, life, or hell, or high water. You stay with him. You're going to go through it all. And that's a lot of comfort. There are people today, you know, that are getting diagnoses from doctors and bad things are happening in their family and things are happening at schools and their young people are being swayed away and it is absolutely depressing and discouraging for us as believers we just got to stay faithful and trust in the fact that God's going to wrap this up be comforted but the message the main message that we want to come away with as we study this together and we've been alluding to the whole time is be ready. That's what all of apocalyptic literature is designed to do, is to get people ready. And maybe it is a little bit to stir people up, their thoughts and their, you know, get their blood pumping a little bit stronger so they'll take this seriously. This stuff's going to happen. And we got to be serious about this and be ready. He said in Luke 12, 40, you must also be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And let me tell you something. Every generation since this first generation interpreted this Bible, this book, as if it would happen in their generation. I don't know if you knew that, but we're not the only generation looking at our culture saying it's got to be, it's got to be now. Every generation has said this. We just happen to be alive right now, and we believe it. And we need to keep believing it. So I don't know what you need to do to be ready, uh, but whatever it is, it needs to be at the top of your to-do list. Maybe it's to put your faith and trust in Christ and to follow it up with baptism and uh, repentance and, and 
and living for him to be ready. Maybe for you, it's to stop being a lazy Christian, to stop buying into the culture that says, oh, you can be a Sunday-only Christian. You don't have to share your faith. You don't, have to, you don't have to really live this. You can compromise here and there and still be okay. Whatever it's going to take for you to be ready, that's what we want to accomplish here in this series. Would you stand up with me and let's pray for that. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this word, this message, for this book. Help us, Lord, to see the big picture. Help us not to get caught up in the politics of it or the thousand different ways to interpret it. But instead, Lord, help us to see the victory we have in Jesus, to remain faithful to him no matter what happens so that we can rest with him in eternity. That's my prayer, God, and the goal for this series. I pray that you would accomplish it in us. In Jesus' name we pray.